Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Criminal defense attorney Robin Steinberg is here with me today. Her new book is called The Courage of Compassion, A Journey from Judgment to Connection. And in our conversation, we talk about the justice system, what she thinks it could do better. We talked about accountability and what she thinks that looks like. And we also talked about empathy, uh, something that is sometimes in short supply when it comes to the criminal justice system. And we also talked about her ideas for about how empathy and her approach toward it uh, really could be transposed to the world outside of criminal law. Um, where sometimes it's in short supply too. So here I am with Robin Steinberg. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I hope you go to the Tanya Acker Show and subscribe to my podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Robin Steinberg. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You founded the Bronx Defenders, which pioneered something that you describe as holistic defense. What does holistic defense mean? So holistic defense really means something quite simple, which is traditional public defense, right, has focused the defenders on the criminal case only and really had sort of a myopic view of your job as a public defender is to defend this person on the criminal case only. What holistic defense does is really recognize that when somebody gets arrested, sometimes even for a minor offense, there are a whole host of things that can happen to them in other systems and a whole host of consequences that will impact them and their families. So it may be that you get arrested and you then get an eviction notice because you've been arrested. It may be that you're brought into family court and you're at risk of losing custody of your children. It may be that you lose your job. Holistic defense really reimagines public defense by recognizing that it's our responsibility to work with clients and think about all those interconnecting systems that might impact them and their families and provide representation and services and advocacy in all of those areas. So it really broadens the definition. If you've got, to use your example, someone whose arrest is going to result in them not being able to go to work, which will, uh, which will then result in their being evicted, would your lawyers then represent that person in the eviction proceeding as well? So at the Bronx Defenders, they work on interdisciplinary teams of advocates. And so you would likely have a criminal defense lawyer on that team who would refer the housing case to the housing lawyer. If they might refer the case to a social worker if somebody had unmet social service needs. Uh, they might refer them to a family court lawyer, but those teams work together in a collaborative way to make sure that they are providing relevant representation to somebody. And have you seen any long-term impacts of this type of representation, reducing recidivism, anything that's beneficial from looking at your clients in this more holistic way? Well, I think it's an interesting question, and there was actually a study done um, years ago by the Rand Corporation who looked at comparing the data about what the sentences looked like for clients that were represented in this model versus a more traditional model, and found that clients that are being represented in this particular model experience far less incarceration, which obviously can lead to better life outcomes and personal outcomes as well as family outcomes. So we're confident that not only is the experience more positive for the client who's able to find help and support in all these other areas, but that the long-term impacts on what a case disposition looks like are impacted in a positive way as well. 
So when you say less incarceration, does that mean mm -hmm. that someone who's charged for a certain offense and who then has access to all of these different resources will likely not be sentenced to jail because of your interventions or less, you know, reduced or less time? What specifically uh, do you mean by that? So I think it means that the advocates are better equipped to raise all of the issues to the prosecutors and to the judges as it's being determined what an appropriate sentence might be if there were to be a conviction. And when you actually raise all those issues, what you really do is get a fuller picture of the humanity of the person who's in the criminal justice system and the impacts that sentences might have. So judges and prosecutors, I think, are more willing to consider alternatives to incarceration and other forms of sentencing that might be more appropriate given the act and the circumstances. I think it's really interesting, Robin, because your work also has focused on a lot of the disparities um, in the criminal justice system, racial disparities, you know, the fact that uh, black people uh, are incarcerated at higher rates for the same offenses as other folks. I think marijuana use is a good example in some jurisdictions. You see a lot of disparities there. There's a, a countervailing wind, uh, though, which is that for all of the good that, and I don't want to just say I'm playing devil's advocate because um, I, I embrace some of this, you know, for all of the necessity of recognizing that we have to remedy and be cognizant of those disparities, we also have to realize that the people who the defendant offended are harmed. And I wonder if your work kind of takes into account the role of the victim in these cases. So if someone, you know, I've just got a small business, someone commits a property crime, and I think that sometimes folks give short shrift to property crimes, because if it's your property, it's a lot of money to fix the property. And they commit a property crime, they have a whole bunch of problems going on, to be sure, and the system recognizes all of those problems they've got going on but what does the system do for the shop owner whose window is broken? Mm -hmm. Look, there's no question but that our system, you know, has many, many deep flaws in it. None of us think it's a system that's acting the way that it should. But here's what I would say about that, Tanya. I would say that nothing about the work I did as a public defender for all those years or nothing about the work that I've done at the Bail Project for the past five years es escapes what I really think is fundamental, which is, of course, people need to be held accountable when they cause harm. Right. But what accountability looks like. Right. And in our system isn't really accountability. What our system really does is it destroys people. And that's not accountability when you destroy somebody. That's just vengeance. And so I think what we're really trying to raise is the question of and the issue of to recognize the context of an act, to recognize the humanity of the actor, to recognize the harm that, that might have created, but to also recognize that justice can look like something more than vengeance and retribution. And that when we're just guided by vengeance and retribution, we oftentimes, I think, wind up um, not only harming the person who's been charged with the crime, but we don't actually get to what's going to be most beneficial or restorative to the person who has um, experience the harm by their actions. And so lifting that up, I think, is what's really important. I think that that distinction is a really important one um, because what people, you know, when I mentioned that countervailing when, and it's probably a little inaccurate to describe it as countervailing. I think that these are all just pieces of our criminal justice system, you know, all different interests that must be considered. People want accountability. 
And I think it's often assumed that folks who believe in reform, people who look for smarter ways of doing justice, uh, don't believe in accountability um, and, are, you know, and are advocating for people to just get off scot-free. Uh, explain, Robin, if you would, why that's not true. Because I think what you're saying is, as we l try to get the system to be more responsive to the whole person, we're not saying that this person shouldn't endure consequences for what he or she did. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, please? Well, I'm sort of laughing to myself because I'm thinking the same way that um, you know, in my book, I try to advocate that we shouldn't label people defendants or offenders or label people in our lives in any way. I'm laughing at the idea that um, social justice or racial justice advocates might be labeled as people that are pro-crime or don't believe in accountability. We're human beings, too. Um, and of course, we believe in accountability. And of course, nobody wants people to be harmed and nobody is pro-crime. That kind of narrative is just the same kind of labeling that I, I think we need to stop generally. I think there is a growing recognition that there's a need for change. There is a growing understanding that our criminal justice system has had a tremendous role in perpetuating injustice in this country and systemic racism in this country. But somehow that recognition isn't enough. It seems to be a first step. And I would argue that what we really need to do is to get under deeper, to go deeper and to look into ourselves to really understand why, even if we recognize that a system is creating injustice and racism, why we can't change it. And I think it really boils down to our unwillingness to see humanity in others and that that is at the heart of our cruelty. And so that's not about lack of accountability, but again, accountability doesn't mean cruelty and it doesn't mean destroying somebody. It means looking at the whole picture, understanding the full context and then meeting out what justice might look like that might be more restorative and repair harm in a different way. And I think also when you think about some of the communities where these folks go back, I mean, look, they're not, they are clamoring for accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, they want justice, but they also want people uh, who are equipped to make contributions to that community. When you think about what incarceration looks like today, um, in the main, in the main. Um, I know there are lots of folks like you, uh, my friends uh, at the Vera Institute, um, who are doing great work on this. But in the main, what do you think that our system of incarceration does to try to ensure that people who go to jail don't end up right back there? How does the system, if at all, try to make that a reality? We do very little inside our jails and prisons to prepare people to return to the community and to help them find a road back. When I think about mass incarceration, I think about the fact that, you know, if it worked, we'd be the safest country on the planet. We are not the safest country on the planet and nobody would even dare allege such a thing, right? So it's not working. And the idea that incarceration is what's going to solve the problem um, is really where we've gone wrong. And what I think we don't recognize is that incarceration in and of itself has harm. It, it hurts, it brings harm to people, and it doesn't prepare people to come back out into the community. When I think about incarceration, I also think about a fact that I think goes by most people, which is our work at the Bail Project over the past five years. What we know is that in the 3,000 local jails that exist in this country, the majority of people sitting in those terrifying, horrible jail cells have not been convicted of a crime. They're there because they can't pay their cash bail. 
And that's true in every state in this country, that that's who's filling up the majority of our local jails. So we really need to address that issue as well, because what we're doing is putting people who have not yet been convicted of crimes, who aren't serving sentences, in jail cells simply because they don't have enough money to pay their cash bail. Um, and that has a negative effect. What we know is that if you're held in jail pre-trial, you're more likely to commit a crime when you're out than if you've been free all along because of the destabilizing impacts of actually even just a few days in jail. Are you opposed to bail in every circumstance? So I think the problem we have is that cash bail is what's inappropriate. So when we talk about the pretrial system, right? What can't determine who stays in and who goes home is how much money you have in your bank account. I think most Americans, if they understand that's how the bail system operates, would agree with that premise. The question is, how do we reimagine a pretrial justice system where the determination about who should be held in pretrial, right, before conviction and who should be able to go home, that that can be determined by something that is fairer, more objective, more transparent, and where the accused have been afforded the right to have counsel in that determination, not by judges setting cash bail that people can't pay. Because what that does is it means two people charged with the exact same offense. Somebody with money gets to go home and somebody without money can't go home and has to suffer the dire consequences of pretrial incarceration and all the impacts that that has. So what I would say is, I think that release should be the presumption for most people who haven't yet been convicted. But if there is a circumstance under which there is actual evidence that's brought forth in a transparent hearing in a courtroom that shows that somebody may pose a real danger to somebody in the community, that needs to be considered and judges should have the discretion to hold that person pretrial. I also think in the context of public safety, though, we have to remember the millions of people that come through our criminal justice system every year who are subjected to also violence and trauma by being held in jail cells. And that's part of our public safety as well. And so we need to really think about that very seriously when we're trying to meet out and reimagining a better pretrial system where cash is taken out of the picture. Money should never be what determines who's free and who's not free. And unfortunately, that's what our cash bail system does. So respond to your critics. Um, and I don't mean you personally, but to critics of that critics? position. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, Misha, you've made it. You've got critics. You've made it. Sister. Critics of that idea. We're both in L.A. When, uh, you know, cash bail was repealed here, a lot of folks pointed to an upswing in property crimes and people, you know, the smash and grabs because they knew they couldn't be kept. And so folks would say to that, you know what, even if you're not going to keep everybody in jail, you need to keep a few more in jail because, again, you've seen these statistics. There are plenty of examples of folks who offended and were released because of, uh, you know, repealing cash bail. And they offended while they were out on release. There's a lot of momentum for that position right now. How do you respond? So that's actually really simple and you're quite right. There has been a shift in the winds and people's misunderstanding of what caused um, some rising crime rates. What's true is, and what the data shows and the research is very clear on, is after the pandemic, for the few years following the pandemic, which I guess is still now, we saw rising crime rates everywhere in this country. And what you know from that fact is that because bail reform only happened in a few places in America, but you saw rising crime rates everywhere in America, you can't 
actually say that bail reform or even criminal justice reform was responsible for rising crime rates. There's no causal relationship between those two things. But what's happened is those narratives, those scary stories, those stories of people that get out and do something terrible and heartbreaking and that puts fear in all of us, those exceptions, those exceptional cases have been pushing um, the American public and they have been guiding our policies. And that's what we really have to get a handle on is we really have to take a look at what the research and data shows. There's no relationship between bail reform and rising crime rates. There's no relationship between criminal justice reform and rising crime rates. In fact, some research would show that when you actually don't hold as many people pretrial, you see many classes of crimes going down. So it's it's simply misinformation. And it's really designed, look, let's get at the heart of it, Tanya. It's really designed to scare people, right? Crime is scary. Of course it is. Of course it is. And we have a natural sort of um, fight or flight response to being afraid. That's natural too. And it's so powerful an emotion that it tends to overcome rationality and it tends to kill our compassion. But if we allow it to drive our policies, right, we're making a terrible mistake. Um, And we're making a terrible mistake because there's no relationship between those two. And fear is what makes us vulnerable to misinformation. And fear is what makes us vulnerable to fear mongering. And it blinds us to what's actually happening. So we need to get more disciplined about really when we hear those stories, really digging into the data, the research, talking to people who are experts in the field to really understand if what we're hearing is true or whether in fact it's just more misinformation and fear mongering. You know, if you scare us enough as human beings, we will do unthinkable things to each other. And that's what we have to put it into. That's the cycle we have to stop, each and every one of us. And so to be clear, your point is you're not disputing that there's been an uptick in crime. You're disputing that that uptick is related to uh, rescinding cash bail systems. Yes, there has been an uptick in some crimes in some places at different times over the past few years, for sure. In other class of crimes, there's actually you've seen a decrease in crime. So it's a very complex map. But But what I can say with absolute certainty is bail reform and reimagining a system where people aren't held in pretrial because they don't have enough money is not responsible for rising crime rates. And I would just, you know, I would ask people to remember that we have gone through, you know, three years of a collective trauma um, of COVID-19, which destabilized all sorts of things from our mental health to substance use to access to to jobs, to access to social services. It is something that we are just coming out of now, and we're going to feel those impacts for a while. We also sold more guns over the past few years in this country than we ever have at any other time in history. That's probably related also to what you see. So we have to look at all of it. It's It's a complex question, and just remember, there's not one thing to point to, but it's certainly not bail reform, and I can say that with absolute certainty. If I, you could change three things about our current system of incarcerating people, what would they be? That is a fantastic question. And I'd love about a week to think about it. All right. Um, I'll just say, I don't want to put you on the spot because I bet you like, I've got 31. One thing that you think that the system should do better when it's putting people in jail. So I think the system ought to be asking itself um, whether putting somebody in jail is the right response to something that's happened and even if a crime was committed um, and to really think in more thoughtful ways about what kind of sentences could we create that are more restorative and do more repair. But if I had to pick one thing, what I would say is that cash bail has been the driver of mass incarceration in this country for 30 years. 
It is responsible for almost all of jail growth across America. It perpetuates the systemic racism that we see by perpetuating racial disparities in the criminal legal system. It has disparate impacts on women. So if I was going to pick something, I would say, let's get to the front end and stop holding the majority of people in those jail cells because they don't have enough money in their bank account and reimagine what a pretrial system should look like. But there's a lot of work to do from the very beginning of the system to the end of the system. And lots of people are doing great work in all those areas. It also seems, Robin, like uh, there is some support from folks on all sides of the aisle, frankly, for Mm -hmm. some reforms along these lines. Mm -hmm. Less related, I think, to the cash bail question, but more to the notion of we just lock up too many people for too many things in the first place. Like Mm -hmm. we are spending a lot of taxpayer money putting people behind bars, for instance, you know, on uh, drug crimes, uh, other things where people are kind of like, do I really want my tax dollars spent toward, you know, incarcerating tens of thousands uh, of young people for uh, smoking marijuana? And a lot of folks don't. Are, Are you finding that too? That it just seems like a lot of people want us, you know, again, while wanting accountability, uh, while wanting to make sure that there's justice for victims, I think there's also a sense that people are like, we need to rethink how much we are locking people up for certain things. Do you think I'm right about that? I do think that. You know, I think people look at the system and recognize that we need change. It's certainly not an honor to be the number one incarcerator in the world of our own people. Um, That's a a, a terrible honor to have to carry. Um, It's a dishonor that we carry. And so I think, you know, I think people are waking up to the way that our system has incarcerated people far too often, the way that we've used handcuffs and patrol cars and jail cells to solve what are fundamentally social problems, right, that really can be addressed by investing in communities that need resources, by rethinking how we respond to mental health, by rethinking how we respond to substance use. There is a a lot, I think, on people's minds about reimagining a better criminal justice system. And if we can just get through our fear to rationality and to compassion, I think we can all get there. Um, Because I agree with you. I think there is a recognition on both sides of the aisles that what we have been doing isn't working and that it is making our communities less safe, not more safe. And so it's time to really reimagine how we operate a criminal justice system and and what we're doing. Can you give me an example of what that type of responsible accountability as opposed to being uh, solely punitive, what does that type of accountability look like? Or can you give me an example of it? So I think that accountability looks very different. It it depends on the act. It depends on the actor. It depends on the context. right? It depends on a lot of things. I think if you look around the country, you can see some really great models of restorative justice and restorative justice circles. What does restorative justice mean? Can you explain? So restorative justice advocates are creating a new paradigm to think about crime and more importantly, to think about punishment and what that means. And so that new paradigm is a way to bring together both the person who has committed the crime and the person who might have suffered the harm and to bring them Um, in whatever way, you know, in whatever way is appropriate to bring them together to try to really hear from each other, understand each other better. So for the person who's committed the crime, it's an opportunity to understand the harm they've actually caused. For the person who had harm committed upon them, it's an opportunity for them to see the humanity in the person that might have caused the harm. And the real goal there is that we find some way to repair and restore the hurt 
um, that has happened in that in that interaction, right, in that criminal act and the person who suffered the consequences of it. What underlies it is something that people say to me all the time, which is that we have to remember that, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, and, you know, it sounds like a slogan, but it's very profound when we think about the fact that people that harm other people generally have also been harmed themselves. And restorative justice is a paradigm of trying to grapple with both those things at the same time, rather than label people the perpetrator and the victim, we recognize that there are two humans, um, two human beings, and that they have a shared connection um, and understanding, and that when you find that together, you might actually find your way to justice and repair and restore people uh, in a much better way than had you just thrown somebody in a jail cell. I think what's interesting about that model is that for those, you know, who are victims, uh, I know you don't like that term, but you know, those who are traditionally uh, would fall into that category, mm-hmm. it gives them an opportunity to be heard by the person who hurt them. And you know, one mm-hmm. thing I know for sure, I've never worked in the criminal system, I've been a lawyer in civil cases, and I arbitrate small claims cases now um, on TV. And for you know, somebody, Robin, even if they know they're not gonna win their case or they're not gonna get the amount of money that they think they should get, they sometimes feel better when the other person is forced to hear from them, to hear mm-hmm. what that act cost them. So I think in that sense, you know, it really, um, it can do a lot of good and maybe actually be therapeutic for uh, people who are hurt, um, uh, you know, who who are hurt by, by, isn't that really what we all uh, want, right? It's really what we all want, right? We all want to be seen. We all want to be understood and we all want to be heard. And everybody should be entitled to that, right? Whatever side in the criminal justice system you find yourself on, everybody should be entitled to those basic human understandings, right? Um, And we would be a whole lot better off if we could find ourselves there and if we stopped otherizing some people um, and really recognize that we're all sharing this human community together and we have a responsibility to see each other, show up for each other, hear each other, try to understand each other and try to find some common ground. Robin, uh, let's talk about your book for a moment. There was a conversation we had off air where you said it raises the issue of people having to think about going through life in the shoes of a public defender. What, 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 what will that accomplish? What are you trying to get people to grasp when you pose that? So I realized that you know what public defenders do day in and day out in their work is they approach each person and each client right, with the idea that they are something beyond the worst thing they've ever done and that we approach each client by trying to understand the full humanity and the context of experiences that they brought to the moment that they might have committed a criminal act and what their possibilities for the future are. And it just really sort of, you know, as I was writing the book, I was sort of chuckling to myself that if the world could think like public defenders, we would show up for each other differently. We would recognize that the worst thing you've ever done is not the way you should be defined forever. It should be understood in its context and understood from your experiences, um, but that we would all be better off if we could withhold that judgment, try to lean in, understand a little bit more, get through our fears and recognize that we have a human connection to this other person. And I think that's a lesson that goes far beyond the criminal justice system. I think that lesson is one, if we carried it out into the world, when you're sitting across a table with a relative who has a political position that you find abhorrent, 
um, it might be good to lean into that a little bit and to be curious and to try to understand how they got to that position and not just cancel people out of existence, but really lean forward to try to understand how that person got to think that way or how that person got to do the thing they did, even if it harmed somebody. Um, and I think if we begin to do that, we might begin to find ourselves back to a more um, compassionate world and one that we'd be proud to leave to our children and our grandchildren someday. Well, it's an interesting point because uh, in that respect, we all kind of are like public defenders with the people who we like, you know, or the politicians we mm -hmm. like, right? Like if mm -hmm. there's somebody we like and they've done something horrible, we constantly remind ourselves and, you know, other folks, they are more than just this horrible thing, you know, but it's for the people who I guess we consider others uh, that we're really willing to cancel in one way or another, either cancel them out of life and put them in incarceration or, or and incarcerate them, uh, throw away the key, who cares what happens next, or kind of cancel them in the sense that we completely dismiss, disregard them and assume that, uh, that they're no good, that they're no good. That's a, that's such an interesting, it's an interesting perspective. It's so true. And I think the criminal justice system is the most extreme example of what we do to each other. But I agree with you that in our everyday life, we do very similar things um, in terms of labeling and otherizing people rather than leaning into the idea that actually they're part of our community and we have a responsibility and obligation to find some way to connect and understand. One thing that people, uh, certainly those who are critical of uh, criminal justice reform movements point out is that, you know, at the end of the day, all of these people had the power to make choices. Folks do have the ability to make choices. People make different choices. Some people make good choices. Some people make um, bad choices. Tell me a bit about how your holistic approach better equips people to think differently about their choices and their lives. You know, I got to think that if someone is going through the system and then now they've got somebody, you know, kind of advising them on this part of, you know, what's going wrong and the other, and the other part of what's going wrong, is it your sense or would it be fair to say that they're better equipped to choose better going forward? I would say that anytime we treat people in their full humanity and recognize who they really are, that experience is transformative. And that experience actually, I think, can lead to people feeling as if when somebody fights for them, they can see a reflection of themselves that is much more positive than the reflection that they might see once they step foot in the criminal justice system where they get labeled. Um, and so to the extent that advocates who are defending people in the criminal justice system can hold up that mirror of full humanity and say, I see you in your full context. I see you in your full humanity. And I respect and honor that and I will fight for that. I think that experience is transformational, not just for the person in the criminal justice system, but can be transformational for the public defender as well. Certainly it was for me throughout the course of my career. Thank you, Robin Steinberg, so much for being here. Thank you for your, uh, this really thoughtful conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I did too. And I really appreciate meeting you and being on air. Thank you so much.